0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics.
1: I'm your host, Morgan. And I'm Norm, learning as always.
0: And we're here to explore the people and phenomena that have shaped how we understand the unseen world. So today we're going into part two of A Tale of Two Gurus. And in this section, I'm leaning more heavily on the autobiography, Being Ramdas, which came Mm. out in 2021, two years after he passed, and in our previous episode, we were following the tandem story of Timothy Leary and Ramdas, how they came to be in the crucible of the 50s and early
1: 60s. How they landed in 221 B Baker Street together.
0: <laughs> and I mentioned last time how in his early works, Ramdas really left out of his writing, the turmoil that his sexuality caused him, what he defined as his bisexuality. And mm. in this most recent biography, it actually features... The understanding of his sexuality a lot more. The whole tone of the book feels really radically honest. You know, man at the end of his life with immense clarity and laying it all out. So I also got a lot of context that reminded me just how much of a different world this time period was.
1: Oh, yeah. A recurring theme in the last episode.
0: So remember when he was living a sort of a double life on each coast, one in San Francisco and
1: one in Boston. With intellectual women and pretty men.
0: He was doing four days in Stanford and three on the East Coast. And doing that flight on that schedule is punishing now. Mm -hmm. And he was doing it 13 hours each way in a propeller plane. That's a nightmare. So the interesting thing about this biography I found was His use of hindsight, without trying to get away from things he regretted and things that have changed in how we understand both the issue and the sensibilities, while also placing that in his own development at the time, so he doesn't try to get away from the inappropriateness of his relationship with Ronnie Winston, but he doesn't he doesn't not mention it, but he also doesn't make it explain it away. Sort of says, "This is what it was. I was attracted to him. I didn't know he was an undergraduate."
1: I feel like you've read more autobiographies and probably just biographies in general than I have, but that seems like a very unusual perspective for an author to take where they benefit from the wisdom of hindsight, but also accept the more contemporary framing of past events instead of you know, being their, their perfect little 30-year-old self as they look back on their life.
0: And he's not trying to get away from regret. I think right. regret is demonized a bit in the New Age community. We're encouraged to have no regrets. Mm. And I came across once something that asserted that cultivating remorse is actually a part of the spiritual pursuit. And this was from a Vedic teacher, so I wouldn't be surprised if Ramdas had that same understanding.
1: Cultivated remorse?
0: Cultivating remorse in one's life. And the idea of cultivating remorse is that you can sit with this regret, this thing that you are remorseful for, and be with it and be with that hard feeling rather than Mm. trying to push it away, trying to make it go away, being with it. Mm. And remorse isn't the same thing as taking the blame or apologizing, even when one's at fault. It's Those actions are important, but it's used more in moving forward and moving on.
1: Yeah. Having the presence of mind to know better seems like a very good personal growth activity.
0: Here's an example of Ramdas illustrating this point in an autobiography. And this comes from his early years as a psychology grad student. Mm. The research was to investigate whether certain parent child patterns engendered guilt, as Freud had hypothesized. And I was tasked with designing the study to test this. We built a box and placed a hamster in it. Then we'd bring a kid into the room and tell her that she was responsible for watching over the hamster and keeping it safe in the box. Yeah. After some minutes, we use a remote control from outside the room to trigger a false bottom in the box and the hamster would disappear. We then observe the kids' reactions through a one-way mirror, noting their distress levels, some of them got <laughs> very upset, and whether they lied about the hamster's whereabouts afterwards. Those Mm -hmm. poor kids! We tricked them! I'm so embarrassed when I think about doing this. The experiment appears in Identification and Child Rearing, a major psychology text that Sears published about 10 years later. He was the primary author, but both I and another faculty member, Lucy Rao, included our research and served as co-authors. I consider the experiment a cruel lapse, abuse in the name of science. Deceiving these children was a breach of ethics. I recently read about a study that tests kids for empathy and compassion— now that's a good experiment. It turns out <laughs> kids have an innate compassion to a remarkable degree,
1: mm-hmm. to quote. I mean, this is what happens when you grow up learning from B.F. Skinner, right? At least he's lying to kids and not conditioning them to fear the hamster.
0: Or murdering the hamster in front of them.
1: Yeah, I was really worried that it was going to be like some P.T. Barnum electric plate elephant thing and not just a false bottom. So progress.
0: But that's an example of being able to sit with a remorse. And mm-hmm. it, it reads as very genuine and a genuine regret.
1: That's also a really good teachable moment. Like I, I'm always so suspicious of motives, that unknowable <laughs> driving force. And that's always what I'm interrogating here. And I, I not so long ago read the uh, biography of Robert McNamara and what oh. he had to say about Vietnam. And it, it read to me as at the same time that he's explaining how we got there. He's kind of showing like, yeah, that wasn't great, but still kind of being defensive about it. Like, oh, we, we couldn't entirely know better. It's like, well, that's that's pretty disingenuous. Whereas here, this guy seems to be kind of using his public figure status and historical figure status to share some teachable moments. Like, that just sounds like a good teacher.
0: So after they got kicked out of Harvard, this moving mass of people that are just Timothy Leary's orbit now, they're looking for a place to set up shop and continue psychedelic research. They called it a psychedelic training center. And I'm using that term really, really loosely. It strikes me as (laughs) it strikes me more as what I'd call a spiritual retreat or just a psychedelic Mm. summer camp. And if you told me, hey, Morgan, I want to go with you for two weeks to Mexico and take psychedelics while we hang out on the beach and discover the depth of our friendship, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That kind of seems to me like what they're doing. They're looking for a place to just hang out. And they still have this orientation towards research and this lofty goal of that's what they're doing. But they're get, it's getting out of hand. So
1: It sounds like it's becoming nominal, that there's anything academic and not just personal about this.
0: So here's an example of what their academic sort of North Star Mm. was. They're taking notes to write a psychedelic adaptation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And the biography describes this as, we wanted as much data to work with as possible to see how closely a psychedelic trip matched the soul's journey through the bardo in between death and rebirth. And there's this feeling that we're Getting somewhere, that they're doing something. There's a still at this this stage when they go to Mexico, this idea that they're getting somewhere. And before you ask, what is the Tibetan Book of the Dead? I, I thought was... you wouldn't know. <laughs> so here's <laughs> I definitely a description. don't.
1: I was worried that was important context.
0: <laughs> well here's a description I pulled from Wikipedia, just for the mm. sake of brevity. The Bardo Todol, commonly known as in the West as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, is a term of text. From a larger corpus of teachings, the profound dharma of self-liberation through the intention of the peaceful and wrathful ones, revealed by someone named Karma Lingpa in the 1300s, and best known work of... Nyingma literature. And in 1927, this text was one of the first examples of both Tibetan and Vajrayana literature that was translated into a European language and is considered to this day one of the best known. And it describes and is intended to guide through the experiences and consciousness after death in the interval between death and rebirth in the next life. And it also includes signs of death, rituals to undertake as death is coming, and as this where the consciousness goes before it pops into another person. Interesting. Okay. And this was a big book in the sixties in the in the community, I should say. Because of guys like Ramdas who were reading it at this time.
1: So is there research contention that psychedelics are going to give them insight into the death experience or I guess not afterlife since we're talking about reincarnation, right?
0: It's the traveling of consciousness. So where the self goes and mm. in my understanding of it as you as you die but if you have this deep meditation ability your consciousness then can go into deeper and deeper planes as the body shuts down hmm. and so they're presupposing that in psychedelics your consciousness is going out into those same ethers and the tibetan using the tibetan book of the dead as a map and they're trying to compare it
1: hmm. i mean that sounds compelling that seems pretty difficult to scientifically achieve but it sounds interesting
0: well and it's interesting when you start research on the beach in mexico
1: (laughs) take take an lsd back to where it all started
0: but they last all of six weeks in mexico before the federales show up and (laughs) kick them out
1: (laughs) (laughs) were they being disrupted
0: they were attracting a crowd that Mm. knew they were they had drugs and mm-hmm. they were uh, – they were they they're the center of a scene. And they're attracting right. just this moving mass of people. They're their own spring break. Oh, God. Okay. And so then they try to move this whole operation to Dominica and then Antigua. And no luck. They're on watch lists. And with good reasons. They're actively shipping drugs into these countries. Yeah. And now it's important to remember that psychedelics aren't explicitly illegal at this time because they're so new. So they're technically not breaking any major laws, but they're exhibiting major grasping behavior that is really characteristic of substance abuse. Hmm. And really, anytime people get overly attached to what it means to the means of getting a certain experience, Mm -hmm. anyone who's had cocaine at a party knows this: (laughs) that when the cocaine runs out, that wild look in people's eyes when they want more. So getting yeah. the LSD, transporting it, having enough, doing debased things to get a little high, including importing morning glory seeds to get a psychedelic reaction, despite it making everyone just sick as a dog there. <laughs> At one point, Richard Alpert, he writes about his LSD bottle broken his suitcase, and so everyone just it's pieces of the suit that it's soaked into.
1: Okay. But so this luckily- this completely moved away from any kind of introspection or higher consciousness.
0: We're still at 75% introspection, but we're getting into this grasping, druggy behavior. Oh, don't worry, it gets worse. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. luckily, there's some really deep pockets in this group. A lady named Peggy Hitchcock and her two brothers, they're all in their early 20s and have just come into their huge inheritances from Gulf Oil- and mm. they bought this gigantic estate in Millbrook, New York as a tax shelter and offer it up to Leary and his crew for a rent of $1 a year.
1: How very friendly.
0: So here's a description of life at Millbrook, again from Ram Dass biography. We felt as though we could transform society. We were an eclectic group of people with a higher vision for living, interacting, and problem-solving with the help of a greater consciousness. Intuitively, we were communal. We cultivated vegetable and flower gardens. We shared chores and babysitting. We were kind of hard on the castle, as we called the mansion. We played football <laughs> inside and kept cats and dogs and a monkey. But for the most part, communal life went pretty smoothly.
1: <laughs> Shades of HPB there.
0: <laughs> I had an aardvark named Artie who used to yes! nestle into me and <laughs> <his laughs> snout in my armpit. <laughs> I baked bread as usual, maintaining an eye on Jack and Susan, kept the cars running, and helped manage the bills. So they start running workshops (laughs) and showing people how to do the same with how to guide people through an asset trip. And they Mm. don't have enough LSD for the public at large, and they don't want to get a rep for being a supplier. But they're on the map for people who want to find it. And the crude keeps growing. So here comes your favorite cameo. Ken <laughs> Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a book mm-hmm. about psychiatric patients based on his real experiences as being a nurse for acid, essentially, in the VA hospital. He was there at the center of an orbit of folks he called the Merry Pranksters. And <laughs> in June of 1964, after his second novel comes out, the whole troop takes a rainbow-colored bus out to Millbrook without telling anybody. I mean, yes, it was the 1960s, but there were still phones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rude. Anyway, they they came like expected in the middle of a party and they're just show up ready to get high. And people in Millbrook are still trying to be researchers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it didn't. It doesn't go very well. The married branchers don't it? really come back.
1: I mean, the fact that you your language already in this episode has shifted from the sort of have this experience, you know, try try to attain some behavioral change or some inner emotional change to get high. Like, it, it seems like they've taken what they thought was the answer to all important human things and turned it into just another tool in the arsenal of hedonism and being young.
0: Well, here's a surprise for you. <laughs> they end up finishing all their notes about ah. the psychedelic adaptation of Tibetan Book of the Dead. And uh-huh. they publish... The psychedelic experience: A manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> its full title. And guess what? It's a bestseller.
1: Uh-huh. And where does the authorship go here? Is this by it's Timothy Leary, or do they share authorship?
0: Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, Ralph Metzner, all the OGs. Okay. I le- I leaf through it, and I can see how it was a hit at the time. It has a hmm. real scholarly style that sort of reminds me of an undergrad thesis paper, hmm. and I have a sense that this has vastly been surpassed in more recent writings on the subject. It feels <laughs> yeah. very under undergraduate. It's the only way I can describe it. Yeah. And there it's written with little scholarship outside of the book. I mean at the time yeah. they're reading Hermann Hess, Dao Ching, Bhadava Gita, Opensky's expositions on Gurdjieff's teachings, all of which read as, you know, a character caricature in itself, because this book is sort of where that caricature comes from. Right, right? And in a way, they are on the forefront of publishing about it for a popular audience. But again, to us as modern readers of it, it seems so dated.
1: Well, I think even an undergraduate research paper has its merits, as long as you acknowledge it as a starting point and a training ground for further lit review and further research and, you know, continuing the traditions of the academic community, as opposed to we've landed it.
0: Yeah, this is one of their shared stepstones that they mm-hmm. one of the last shared stepstones that they all keep.
1: Right, right.
0: Guys like Ralph Messner, they move on to publish other things on the, mm-hmm. the spiritual path. But at this time, Leary and Alpert, they're really big on the lecture circuit in New England. And we're talking standing room only people of their group are going off to India. Relationships in the community are dissolving and reforming. It's happening.
1: (laughs) So when you say lecture circuit, is this like academic, like going on campus as an invited speaker? Or is this selling tickets in the same place where Harry Houdini?
0: (laughs) It's campuses, it's halls, it's
1: lectures. So it's, it's presented in that tradition of Intellectual discovery and academic
0: of that tradition of someone who knows something is going to come talk to us about something. Okay, I think similarly to how you know almost a hundred years prior, Madame Blavatsky had people giving lectures in her salon. Right,
2: right. Except
0: instead of a salon, it's a you know big auditorium of academics in their free time but you know timothy leary meets his next wife a german aristocrat who was raised in sweden named nina Mm -hmm. von schleybrugge who at the time nina von schleybrugge and she at the time was the face of winston cigarettes and on billboards (laughs) just all over new york yeah so she and timothy leary do acid together one fourth of july and immediately get engaged they're married that winter in a huge eclectic wedding with celebrities Fashion people, roast pig, salmon, ham, salad, champagne, and of course, the reception punch gets spiked LSD on
1: purpose, or was it like? Of course, on purpose. Someone's gonna do it. I don't know. (laughs) So, (laughs) is that the origin of that? Is this the genesis of James Cameron's clam chowder on the set of Titanic?
0: So we haven't talked about what these guys look like so much. Mm -hmm. But I want you to take a minute to do a quick image search. All right. Because Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert are both big shapeshifters pending on their facial hair.
1: Yeah, that can do that.
0: With short hair and no beard, Leary looks to me like a disapproving executive on a sitcom. (laughs) And then as he ages, he starts to look like like an out-of-pocket grandfather who you'd have to change down the
1: street. This guy has worn a lot of looks. I get shades of Hemingway. And then I also get shades of, like, Jim Broadbent. <laughs> huh. I don't know what I expected, but it's very
0: eclectic. I dig it. Try Richard Helper. He has an Ooh. incredibly expressive collection of features. His eyes, eyebrows, yeah. teeth are consistent regardless of his hair and beard combinations.
1: Joseph Fine is who I'm seeing here. <laughs> Before the beard. Find one after the Before beard. Before the beard. Whoa. <laughs> okay. So he morphed into kind of a Bob Vila-looking... Like, I would trust this guy to repair my deck.
0: Or paint a happy tree.
1: Yeah. Oof. Smoldering though. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's got he's got those rasputin eyes. They just they're penetrating.
0: So Tim goes off on a honeymoon in India and leaves Albert in charge of Millbrook. And during this time, he describes what's a common feature of the seeker's journey. Albert's had insights into compassion and love, insights into humanity and humanness. But he comes down from the high and returns to what he calls the stubborn feelings of shame, Mm -hmm. ambivalence, and inadequacy. Yes. So he gets curious about what's beyond himself, why he can't stay high. Why does he have to come down to these difficult feelings Mm -hmm. at all? And he wants to get to the source. And this is the same drive that leads people to the paths of extreme renunciation, doing pilgrimages. This feeling is a familiar stopping point on the journey.
1: So- is unique compared to someone who thinks acid is the answer. So once you've got the acid, you've you've got the skeleton key, whereas he's recognizing this is a cool tool, but there's clearly more. There's more to be well, done and learned.
0: He has recognized that, but then he attacks the problem with the only resources he has, which is the acid. So he yeah. and six other people lock themselves in Millbrook's bowling alley for two <laughs> weeks. Taking four hundred mics of LSD every four hours. I'm I'm not a pharmacist, but that sounds like a big number. It's a lot, and it's a lot, especially <laughs> a lot to take every four hours for two yeah. whole weeks. And surprise, surprise, they develop a tolerance and mostly just get on everyone's mm. nerves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no capital B breakthroughs, and at this time. Albert freely admits he's stuck in a cycle. His answer to everything, including the flu, is to take LSD. And he's finding success in in fundraising and talks and developing what will become his speaking style. It's a bit of like a stand-up comic doing the clubs. He's,
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's working out his material, tightening the act. Yeah.
0: But everything around the book is starting to fracture. There's practicalities, who's going to do the dishes, and there's personalities of people who still want to be scholarly, people who just want to stay high all the time, and Mm -hmm. also weird manipulative assholes that tend to follow druggy scenes. Hmm. Everyone's not on the level here, even though they supposedly think they are.
1: So you've got impressionable people with resources, and that's going to attract bad actors and maybe some earnest fools and a lot of people who are not quite as far along in their journey.
0: So Tim comes back and he's really not into the changes that have been happening. They're essentially two camps, like I said. And his relationship with his new wife is already breaking down. They divorce that same year. He goes on to marry a woman named Rosemary Woodruff. She'll stay around for a while. And Nina, meanwhile, goes on to meet this guy at Millbrook named Bob Thurman, who's been studying Tibetan Buddhism. They get married, leave Millbrook, go on to have four kids, one of whom is actress Uma Thurman. What?
1: That's wild. (laughs) I thought you'd like that little cameo. (laughs) Born of an acid-ridden seeker's journey. That's fascinating.
0: So Richard Albert takes a vacation to Europe, has lunch with chemist Albert Hoffman, the guy who first synthesized LSD, Mm -hmm. and they have a lovely discussion about its possibilities, its potentials, where your soul goes. But when he gets back to Millbrook, Tim and Ralph Metzer, the German grad from the last episode, he's been around this whole time. (laughs) <laughs> they basically tell Albert they don't think he should come back and they kick him out. Yeah. And in his autobiography, Ramdas has some clear perspective on this time. I responded with a phrase I'd learned from Alan Watts. When the, when you get the message, hang up the phone. But I hadn't taken this advice myself. Ooh. And constantly getting high and coming down was becoming its own kind of despair. I could touch those other planes of consciousness and love, but I couldn't stay there. And he goes on to describe an anecdote of wrecking a friend's Cessna at a landing and then says my leadership at Millbrook had been life flying. I'd been reckless or ill-prepared, or maybe both. And I kept going and going and going, breaking through our arrangements and structures. Though ultimately, nobody had been hurt. My decisions had not come without a cost. I'd been impulsive, and my judgment was in question. In my wake, Tim and Ralph saw a crumpled mess.
1: Wow. I want to read this purely for that writing style and the... The candid reflection that he's bringing to this almost any life would be interesting through that lens and with that willingness.
0: Not gonna lie, it's a really good book. There's a reason <sighs> I messaged you halfway through the week, going, "I just love it."
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I already love it too. Yeah.
0: So he essentially beat bops around Europe, London, lands in California for a cameo with Ken Kesey again during his famous acid tests, mm-hmm. and. He has another interesting encounter with psychedelics and divinity. Have you ever heard of a guy named Mare Baba?
1: I, not at
0: all, no. He was an Indian spiritual teacher. Some say saint. He did not talk and he communicated only in writing and with his presence. And he traveled around India in a big blue bus. Nice. And he had a fair amount of followers in the West at this time, given the lack of internet. And he was so alarmed by psychedelic use and. He wrote letters to his followers that were in the community where Albert was saying that they shouldn't take psychedelics or associate with people that do. So Albert wrote back, these chemicals, if used wisely, employed, seem to provide a key to unlock the door, allowing the sunlight of reality to shine for a moment. For many people, the experience helped them consider their spiritual work seriously, rather than get lost in atheistic intellectualism. And Mir Baba writes back, your letter made me happy. I know you are a sincere seeker of truth. Perhaps LSD could arouse spiritual longing in some. The experience he described, though, were, quote, as far removed from reality as a mirage from water. No mm. matter how much you pursue the mirage, you will never reach water, and the search for God through drugs must end in disillusionment. And he tells Alpert he could only take LSD three more times. Wow. Then he had to stop completely. And Alpert said, I loved Baba, but back then... I wasn't that kind of follower. I had years of research behind me and I thought, what does he know? Nice old man in India, never took acid. And so he very publicly tells this story and drops the fourth tap of acid.
1: Does our friend Mare Baba ha- well, not just him, what, is there a culture around psychedelics in India at this time? Like if it's if it's gaining attention, does anyone else see it as A way to unlock either interest in spiritual pursuits or a shortcut, which seems to be where our protagonists are taking it.
0: There doesn't seem to be a tradition a la ayahuasca in South Mm. America. Their understanding of the divine and the ecstatic divine is through meditation and ritual and Mm. this whole other type of traditions, not including actual psychedelics, but they're hearing about it because it's making news.
2: Right. Okay.
0: And so this action that he does has repercussions albert's talk starting to get picketed and there's a growing political anxiety it's all heating up and he recognizes later that he really should have heeded Mirababa's advice and he (laughs) openly admits to being super contrarian and it leading to dark places like he hadn't (laughs) learned the lesson yet yeah and while he's in california he hooks up with a guy named owsley stanley and essentially Mm -hmm. becomes a distributor The likes of which include the Hells Angels. And because Albert is going around giving lectures on LSD and everyone leaves, there's always a couple guys who want to buy. And he just ends up with suitcases full of money. This is his end of good (laughs) fellas yeah yeah not to mention he's also having a real soul connection with this nice lady named caroline and living a double life because he's hooking up with young guys something he knows is corrosive to his soul lsd starts getting outlawed and albert is starting to freak out so while at millbrook tim new wife rosemary and his kids get busted for a real small amount of pot at the te- Mexi- at the Texas-Mexico border. Mm-hmm. They tried to hide it in his teenage daughter's underwear, which is just Ugh. all kinds of awful. He Come gets on, convicted man. in 45 minutes to 30 years in jail.
2: Wait, what?
0: Timothy Leary gets convicted on that possession charge within 45 minutes to a sentence of 30 years.
1: That's insane.
0: It got thrown out on appeal. But
1: yeah, it's still insane.
0: <laughs> then the next spring, Millbrook is straight up raided by an up and coming DA named, wait for it,
1: G. Gordon Liddy. Oh, I know this name, but I can't place it. Who
0: would later go on in infamy for his role in Nixon's Watergate scandal. Ah, uh, yes. He was one of the plumbers.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> plumbers.
0: <laughs> then Leary is asked to testify before Congress about LSD use. And it doesn't
1: go well. How else could it possibly have gone?
0: <laughs> okay, now for Albert. In this crescendo, the last third of Goodfellas, his Oof. beloved mother gets sick. She doesn't pass immediately. And there's enough time for him to reconcile these difficult feelings, introduce her to his girlfriend, have her disapprove. And he's able to quickly duck out for a speaking tour, something called the Human Bee in Rather than sit in or bed in, it's in San Francisco. <laughs> Timothy Leary stands up in a tunic with flowers in his hair and utters the iconic slogan, turn on, tune in, and drop out. Which Romdas writes that Leary was becoming more sophisticated in his social game. And he wanted to see how far he could push it. He knew what he was becoming. But that's where we're going to leave Timothy Leary for now. We're going to just follow Richard Albert.
1: Before we leave him entirely, I mm-hmm. thought that that quote was in reference to like the zombification of American teenagers with the TV. Is he talking about taking acid?
0: He is talking about turning on was the words they used to describe giving someone acid and letting them see that expanded consciousness. Mm. And then tuning in was to get it and dropping out was to quit playing the game, the social game that everyone has you playing. And people took this any which way. It hit everyone differently. And he knew that.
1: It's a good slogan. Yeah.
0: So he's sort of going off on his Messiah journey. That's where we can <laughs> leave him. Let's go back to Richard Alpert before he becomes Ramdas. His mother passes away and he has this insight that death, the greatest transition there is, is just so unacknowledged in the culture at the time. and mm. It can't be celebrated if it's surrounded by this denial and dishonesty. No one's admitting you're dying. No one's talking about it. And he felt that in the hospitalization experience.
1: That's fascinating.
0: So long story short, he and his girlfriend end up breaking up, and a friend of his invites him to f- join him on a trip to India.
1: This this seems like another discovery that <clears throat> this seems like another discovery that they could have shortcutted to simply by exploring other cultures. I think the majority of of countries and cultures outside of the U.S. have a different relationship with death. I don't know how we got here, but
0: I mean. He could have saved himself so much time had he listened to the first guru that uh, he came across, that letter from Mirababa, and maybe gone and pursued it. But he pushed himself to this incredibly stressful position. Anytime you yeah. have suitcases full of drugs and money, it's <laughs> and the hell's angels are calling you, it's not a great scene. Yeah,
1: you're not at the peak of good decision making. That's That is a very common story, I think. You're surrounded by wisdom and good advice, and you just... You just can't listen and you just keep going.
0: Just not there yet. You, but when you get the message, hang up the phone.
1: Yeah, I like that.
0: I like that. We'll, we'll do a whole Alan Watts thing because I just love him. So <laughs> now we're getting into this era, how Richard Albert became Ram Dass. Yeah. And this part of his transition is famously covered in the book, Be Here Now. It was huge. Mm. I cannot stress that enough. But I prefer using the autobiography as a source, because though he wrote a ton of books that are very self-reflective, I like getting the zenith of it. Mm-hmm. So he and his buddy, they start in Tehran and drive overland to India. Through Iran, Afghanistan, they have an audience with the Dalai Lama, which he looks back on a little shamefaced and says, he must have thought we were babes in the woods. And yeah. it's honestly an interesting travelogue just from that perspective of seeing how the world was at that time and he has appreciation for how much the region's changed. Yeah. And this type of Seeker's journey is also incredibly relatable. Who among us hasn't gone on a trip hoping for something to happen?
1: Well, I'm sure there's plenty of books being written about that exact thing by their contemporaries. I feel like this version would have been more interesting to read about.
0: I mean, he's a known counterculture figure, and he also mm-hmm. has a ton of Of acid and people recognize him they hit him up and he just gives it out he gives it to any holy man who wants to try it here's some of his reaction or their reactions i should say Mm -hmm. it gave me a headache it's good but not as good as meditation (laughs) where can i get some more (laughs) 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 then one day towards the end of his trip we're talking the last week and he's feeling pretty bummed. He crosses paths with, and I'm sure many people will share this experience, a tall 23-year-old guy from Laguna Beach who's wearing his hair in dreadlocks, <laughs> dressed as a holy man, who's mm-hmm. just, and he just shows up at their hostel looking for him. This guy's birth name was Michael Riggs, and he was going by another name, Bhagavan Das, and he mm-hmm. has his own epilogue later. But Albert's instantly drawn to him. I think he found him attractive, but he's also pulled <laughs> towards him. And his other friend wants to go to Japan, and he's clearly rich, so he just leaves the Land Rover with Albert, who immediately (laughs) goes on to follow Bhagavan Das, and they go barefoot, begging for food like Buddhist monks, squatting on the street, staying in pilgrim rest houses, and they do this
1: for two months. Okay. This sounds a lot like the millennial thing, where you're like, oh, just can can you pay me so that I can just go be a young person traveling the world? Like, they're not actually poor, they're just indulging in the practice of begging
0: and he acknowledges that because he describes holding the bowl to beg while having in his backpack a ton of american express travelers jacks so after two months this guy says i need to see my guru and apparently he overstayed his visa and was really hoping the guru could fix it (laughs) so albert just begrudgingly agrees i as i think we all would this whole experience just I can't describe how it makes me shiver, the thought yeah. of it. It's incredibly <laughs> relatable to me. So they drive yeah. up north from New Delhi. And during one night on this, they have a layover where Albert has just terrible tummy troubles. And on oh, his way to the outhouse in the dark, he's staring up at this beautiful sky. And he thinks of his mom. He feels really connected to her all of a sudden. That's nice. nice. He doesn't tell anyone about this. So they continue. And Albert's getting really reluctant I love this line he writes. He writes, gurus are a hustle. Ooh, and he's, he's not loving it. They get there and everyone immediately surrounds the car. Byron just says, hey, let's see the guru and just lopes away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Albert wants to stay by the car, is really worried about this giant, fantastic 70s Land Rover, but he ends up following him. And then he sees this little old man seated on a plank beneath a tree with people surrounding him. And instantly he says to himself, this looks like a cult or a picnic at a mental hospital. Keen. Yeah. (laughs) He watches Bhagavan Das touch this man's feet. He doesn't want to touch anyone's feet. And then Bhagavan Das just openly weeping, calling him Maharaji, which means great king in Hindi. Mm -hmm. And then this old man points to Albert and says something in Hindi and someone translates. You came in big car? He responds. Yeah. Will you give it to me? of Gita immediately explains, Maharaji, if you want it, it's yours. And Albert freaks out. You can't give him the car. That's not our car. It's David's. No one's listening to him. And the old man Mm -hmm. continues, how much money you make in America? Sorry for my terrible accent. I apologize. And I figure he must think, you know, all Americans are rich. That's how he monologued it. Mm. Yeah. At one time, I made a lot of money in America. How much did you make? Well, one year I made $35,000. Some of it in cash. Will you buy a car like that for me? And he says, this is the fastest hustle I've ever seen.
1: <laughs> it's not even a hustle. That's just.
0: But the whole time, this old man is just smiling at him, giving him double door twinkly eyes. <laughs> and and eventually just like waves him away. So they go eat. And he figures yep. out, oh, he was, he was pulling my leg. So after they eat, he brings him back and they have some tea. And he says, through the translator again, but looking directly at him, you were out under the stars last night. And he's thinking, you know, he's explaining it away to himself like anyone could have been out there. And then mm-hmm. goes and say, you were thinking about your mother. She died last year. She got very big in the stomach before she died. And then he just looks at him and says, in English, the word spleen, Ooh. which is how she died, cancer in the spleen. And this experience just cracks Richard Alpert open. And I'm going to read you a section from the autobiography describing this moment. It's a little long. My mind goes faster and faster, trying to figure out how Maharaji knows this. Finally, like a cartoon computer stuck in an impossible loop, the bell rings, the red light flashes, my mind just stops. I'm stuck. My rational mind gives up. It just goes. Poof. At that same moment, there's a violent wrenching in my chest, a powerful pull, and I start to cry. Later, I realize it was my spiritual heart opening. I have been looking for someone who can show me more about planes of consciousness, but in the intensity of this opening, I forgot all about maps or map makers. Concepts from my past are not even remotely relevant. After weeks of pilgrimage, being here now with blisters and bad food, I realize Maharaji is orchestrating my awakening. The people around him know what is happening. This is what a guru does. Suddenly, sitting there, it occurs to me that if Maharaji knows my thoughts about my mother, then he knows all my other thoughts too. Including the things I'm most ashamed of, my bisexual double life, my intellectual pretense, my anger at my mother, and I can't bear he knows all this. These are things I keep carefully hidden. Finally, I summon the courage to look at him. He's looking back down at me with only a few inches away. All I see in his face is total love. I know he knows all these things I'm so ashamed of. He knows, but instead of criticism, all I feel is love coming from him. He's not judging me, mocking me, laughing at me, just talking to people. I look about him. He looks down at me. And I realize he's just loving me with pure, unconditional love. I cry and cry and cry. I'm not sad. I'm not happy. The nearest I can come to describing is I'm crying because I've come home. I keep saying to myself, I'm home. I've carried this load of secrets and shame all my life. And now the journey's finally over. Such a relief. I've arrived at the place I've been looking for at home in my soul. The shame of my hidden stuff washes out of me. All the thoughts, all the judgments, the paranoia about the car, about the guru, it's just all gone, and I'm left with a feeling of release, of all-pervading love and peace.
1: That sounds like how someone might come out of a deep self-loathing or depression if they literally come out. I know come out is usually reserved for like being homosexual, but I think any part of yourself that you're afraid to share or afraid that you'll be judged for, is going to create that internal conflict. Like He's he's well, saying it I, in very grand terms, but that's what it sounds like to me.
0: Well, we it's hard to describe one's own inner awakening. It's easier to just mm-hmm. say it in third-party terms. He met this guy and he had an awakening, or he had right. a spiritual understanding. But I like this because it was so vivid and clear, and didn't sound to me as ham as some people's descriptions of their own awakenings. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and he's folded in, he gets sent to another nearby temple, this place, Kanchi, and a man named Hari Das, who cannot speak and communicates by writing on a chalkboard, shows up and says, Maharaji's instructed him to teach Albert about yoga, and he effectively becomes his tutor. At some point, Maharaji summons him, and I'm just going to call him that for now. I might switch. His name, as he is known, is Neem Karuli Baba, NKB. But Albert constantly refers to him as Maharaji in his book. Mm. So I might jump back and forth. Which
1: is like an honorative.
0: It's like calling someone master. Right. Or the, the, it's a honorific. Yeah. Sometimes they'll call Baba. It's acknowledging that he knows and he's an elevated right. being. And this guy, this old man says, "You do you have the medicine? And what he means is the LSD in Albert's bag. And he ends mm-hmm. up taking over 900 micrograms of LSD at one time. And Albert's just amazed and sitting by him all day, waiting to help or be of service and answer his questions. And then nothing <laughs> happens. Mm-hmm. He Neen Karla Baba just goes about his day. He's talking to people, doing his thing, occasionally looking over and just giving that little double door twinkle. <laughs> and here's how Ram Dass interpreted it. It was a momentous change in how I viewed the meaning of my psychedelic experiences. At that point, those experiences were a significant part of my identity, but Maharaji was showing me that I could let go of psychedelics with all the ups and downs and come into true oneness. Maharaji stands in two planes of consciousness at once, one foot in form as an individual soul and one foot in the vastness ocean of formless love, in undifferentiated oneness. He is a living paradox of form and formlessness. And he was showing me the Atman, the one. And gradually I began to see my spiritual being less in terms of planes of consciousness and more as a continuum, a unity of being, all one.
1: Sounds like he's already learned that he got good advice in the beginning where he should lay off the acid and learn to meditate. (laughs) Because this guy can drop just a legendary amount. And he's so conditioned to handle intrusive thoughts and perception and control his response to all these things that... Like, I don't believe for a second he's not feeling anything. He just has internal regulatory muscles that are very well developed.
0: To the point where essentially nothing happens for him. And then Albert just stays at the ashram. It closes for the winter. So he's pretty isolated. He's learning from Haridas. He's doing his practices. He's just eating nothing but rice and dal. Hmm. And he's beginning to deal with his inner stuff. And he writes, just because you decide you're on the spiritual path doesn't mean habitual patterns vanish. yeah, And so it's with this rhythm, him having a structure, he works at breaking down everything that caused him to start seeking in the first place. He issues of hmm. his ego. It's, it's again, a common step in the seeker's path, but you really don't need to go full renunciation and celibacy and living in an ashram <laughs> to get there. This is just right. what he did. And he's also learning the larger matrix of yogic mythology, saints, stories, the complex web of Hindu mythology. And you know, with hindsight, he does have the clarity to say these: the seekers don't need to follow in his footsteps. That the journey mm. is inner, not outer, and I think he's doing that because this book, *Be Here Now*, started the trend of people going to India trying to get enlightenment,
1: mm-hmm. trying to replicate his journey rather than pursuing exactly. their own journey. Yeah,
0: exactly. And he describes an increase in inner awareness of his guru's presence, which is more on the scale of. Divinity than just a spiritual teacher. It's also an aspect that makes the guru relationship really distinct from a spiritual teacher. So there's a devotional aspect and spiritual penetration. So when he meditates, he can feel like his guru's with him, guiding him. And he's having full trust in the guru as not just guiding him, but being the thing he's trying to achieve. It's a little bit like if you were following, I want to say if you're following Jesus, and he's also sitting right there. That might be the closest we can understand it.
1: So he's not just a role model. He's a divine figure.
0: He's a a role model because he's achieved the state. Mm. So there's a reason, though, that Albert's mind immediately went to this looks like a cult and gurus are a hustle. Mm -hmm. And because this devotional aspect that's so changing and crucial is so easily misused and abused and is how you get – just all the awful spiritual followings that we've seen in the years before and
1: since. Anything that requires a high degree of trust has a high potential for abuse.
0: Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take a little detour into a book that I really like called The Sovereign Self, Reclaim Your Inner Joy and Freedom with the Empowering Wisdom of the Vedas, Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita by a lady named Archia Shunya. And she writes, according to Vedic tradition, you need a living guru until your metaphysical self-ignorance is fully shed, and your goal is to awaken from the spell of illusions and appearances common to existence, also called maya, and embrace your inner guru, the self. So hmm. Vedic gurus is always a living guru who can communicate with you in real time, so who you can pose questions and receive answers, hmm. and who can correct your train of thought and respond, respond to you, and help keep you on the path also with their presence. Sure, okay. She also writes, a a true guru's words remind us of our sovereign potential. A guru won't ask us to worship them, but rather to look for what is worth worshiping in ourselves. The guru says, look within, not towards me, to find truth. The only trip that you must now accomplish is to turn towards your own self. I am the consultant, a guide, a mentor, a professor, but not God. So despite having this existential element, there's a real understanding that there are Teaching you, showing you an example, but not divinity itself in any way. So she also writes, these teachings received from the expert, the guru, impart not only fullness and inner power at every encounter, but a gradual and permanent lessening of Maya's dope grip on the seeker's mind and self-revelation of higher paradigm of suffering-free existence. <laughs>
1: I mean, that sounds like good advice for choosing a, yeah. a college advisor, among other things.
0: <laughs> the students become noticeably more emotionally mature and better human beings, and over time, they suffer less from self-ignorance. Remember, awakening is gradual, but permanent, not a fleeting one-time event.
1: You can take it with you.
0: So here's your checklist. A Vedic master can be a monk or a householder. Either way, They are not confused about their lifestyle or their relationship with sex. They do not mix up their paths. They never sleep with students, period,
1: she writes. It's a good starting point.
0: (laughs) Yeah. True masters feel secure and whole inside themselves. They model inner fullness, remain humble, unpretentious, and always remind you of your truth. They don't depend on you to make them feel important. They Mm -hmm. won't ask you to bow. They're not God's messengers. They don't do things to attract attention,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: to feed the self-power yeah a true master will also exhibit emotional maturity and a command of their senses they may have had a personal learning curve before but now that they're masters they're aware of their role and they're in control of their minds not just pretending to be in control they don't have oops motives uh, pardon me. they don't have oops moments right <laughs> or any hidden character flaws they're on brand 100 of the time yeah and they also admit shortcomings as human beings and they can withstand constructive criticism because they're already there.
1: Which speaks well to the autobiography, yeah.
0: (laughs) They're friendly and loving towards all beings, but they have healthy boundaries. They cite Mm. benefits of ethical living, discernment, self-inquiry. They don't do promises of miracles, dreams, blessings, gizmos, mantras. She has a whole list. (laughs) And they hold the scriptures higher than themselves. Mm. So the path that learn them the knowledge.
1: I mean, a lot of this comes down to they retain humility, and they don't demand anything from you.
0: And she also, this is a great book in, uh, in its entirety, but she also has a chapter called Conceptual Difficulty with Submission to a Guru. Yeah,
1: good chapter.
0: <laughs> and she frames it like this, to a teacher whom you've already accepted after due examination and discernment, submitting yourself ignorance not your self-esteem, or your right to self-determine your life. That's what submission is. And she gives examples Mm. of how we submit daily to surgeons when we're going to go anesthesia, to teachers, to a babysitter when we give them our kids. And in this vein, we submit to a guru when they've demonstrated their spiritual authority and integrity.
1: Yeah. Deference to experience and expertise. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. She's anchored in the Vedic tradition, which is where Ramdas sort of is at this time. But it applies obviously, across traditions. I think it's a good checklist for anybody. And we have to observe a potential teacher clearly and perceive how attached they are to what's going on around them and ask, why am I following them and their knowledge? What what about them mm-hmm. is really pulling me? And also to be aware of what another teacher I like named Michael Singer calls spiritual ego.
1: Spiritual ego.
0: As you get further on the path, having an ego about it.
1: Ah, uh. Getting up your own ass, basically, <laughs> holding it over yeah. people like, I've achieved enlightenment. I've done acid. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've, I've got it figured out, and you plebes have so far to go.
0: Mm-hmm. So, back to Ramdas and his guru, Dean Karoli Baba. He gives him the name Ramdas on this trip, uh. and he tells him to go back to the West and come back in two years. And critically, he also gives him his blessing for the book he's going to write, to which the new Ramdas says, What book? Oh. And so he goes back, and on the way, he stops by Japan, meets Suzuki Roshi, who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and is considered the father of Zen in America. And then he's back with his family, and he famously would tell people in talks over the decades after that, if you want to see how you're doing with your spiritual work, go spend some time with your family.
1: (laughs) That's really good (laughs) advice.
0: And he writes that this is where it comes from. His dad remarries, and... (laughs) Ramdas is the only one who's open hearted about it. And the new mm. wife is this really nice lady named Phyllis. And she's the first one to call him Ramdas, like in his family. His, his dad called him Rumdum. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that tracks.
0: And one of his brothers won't stop calling him Ramdass. Ooh. <laughs>
1: that's, that's pretty off color.
0: But he has a new perspective on the people in his life and describes it thus. But now I saw Billy, his brother, from a soul perspective. My brother's karma was to go through life as a materialist, a star athlete, Mm. identified with his body, socially connected, married to a wealthy woman. Even his religious life was institutional and consumerist. We were on different journeys. I didn't have to react to his sarcasm and power plays with resentment. I could choose compassion and let go of the rest. Meanwhile, his other brother, Leonard, is in an insane asylum, and he goes to visit him, and Leonard says, I don't know why you have to leave and I have to stay. I want to tell you a secret. So then he leans forward and says, mm-hmm. you know, Richard, I'm Christ. And ramdas says, I am too. No, no, you don't understand. And he says, the reason you're in the hospital, Leonard, is that you think you're Christ, but you don't see that everybody else is Christ too. Wow. And although then like totally becomes crazier and he becomes more of a yogi, they still He's able to see his spiritual problems from a soul perspective or spiritual perspective. He was having what he described as astral visions, experiencing other planes, and caught up in the power to greed fantasies. So he saw his schizophrenia as a way that his soul was essentially caught in between webs of understanding reality, having glimpses of the unity of existence, but still weighed down by greed and power and want and all these vices. That,
1: I would be very interested to hear a critique of that by someone who actually has experience dealing with schizophrenia or other psychotic conditions. That, that sounds like an incredibly syrupy way to contextualize it. i read a really interesting paper
0: by a guy who had an Islamist perspective on mental health, hmm. and it was from, I think it was from Saudi Arabia, or in that... In the area. And it was how to communicate with people about understanding not just treatment, but taking steps towards when the view on what causes the problem is so embedded. So, this way I think of understanding mental health struggles through a spiritual lens is not unique to the world. Right. Anyway, so Ramdas is living his life. He's given talks. People start coming around and he's staying on his dad's property. And his dad's surprisingly supportive. He becomes the subject of a documentary. Um, one of the students that comes around is a psychology grad student named Daniel Goleman. Do you recognize that name?
1: I do. And I'm also having trouble placing the context for it.
0: He would later go on to write the book Emotional Intelligence, 1995, uh... and focus, and have a New York Times column. <laughs> and <laughs> during one of Ramdas Talks in New York, where he doesn't prepare what he's going to say, he just goes into silence. And he feels his guru's presence and he talks. And afterwards, a lady named Lilith North comes up to him and she was a court stenographer and she just transcribed the whole talk. And she gives (laughs) him just all these papers and he doesn't know what to do with it. So he throws it in the trunk of his car. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then later, when he's out in San Francisco, staying with friends, one of his friends, John, believe notices it, pulls it out, reads it and says, you got a hell of a book here. And that would go on to be Be Here Now. Wow. And it would go on to sell more than 2 million copies.
1: So literally an improv stream of consciousness lecture through the fingers of a court stenographer. Boy, I would really love for him to have tracked her down and given her some royalties or something.
0: So I want to put her name in at least say so,
1: yeah. someone did the work. <laughs> credit where credit is due.
0: And so he after his two years are up, he goes back to India for about a year to spend time with Neem Baba again. He has a series mm-hmm. of what I'm just gonna call our affirming experiences that I'm glossing over so we don't get too caught up in the guru experience. What comes out of this time and these experiences, though, is just this reaffirmation of love over power and his Mm. spiritual group, he calls it a spiritual satsang, this devotional community of other Westerners that are with him at this time with (laughs) an NKB, as I wrote in my notes. And during this time, he's encouraged and develops an appreciation for Christ and his teachings. He's told by the guru to love everybody and tell the truth. And he's sort of given work to do. Mm-hmm. He's hanging out with this guy, but he's also just in this community that's sprung up around him in the ashram and getting assignments, essentially, that feels a little bit like you're running not quite a summer camp, but a college <laughs> campus when classes are out of session, but people are still yeah, hanging yeah. around. <laughs> and Fair. that's part of him having more and more affirming experiences, is thinking he needs to go one way, the guru sort of twerking him Say Do this and then something unfolds and it's incredibly meaningful to him.
1: I love the phrase affirming experience because that seems to really capture what everyone thought they were getting from acid at the beginning and then couldn't seem to keep getting or couldn't consistently get. I
0: mean, it's a re- reaffirmation of faith, essentially, in both yeah. this guru, his guru and the path he's on. So in March 972, <coughs> he eases up time to go back and... His guru tells him don't have ashrams don't have students don't stay in any place for more than 5 days Whoa. you have to love and serve everyone mm. and within the next year he gets word that his guru has dropped the body and he and the rest of the satsang go back to pay their respects
2: mm. yeah
0: so ramdas's devotion to his guru or rather ramdas's devotion to this initial guru is sort of the foundation mm. of his spiritual practice at this point and is considered his main Um, guru his main focus lineage it's like essentially having you pick a religion (laughs) this is his the path he's on but within that and within the tradition ramdas is in you can recognize something called upa guru which is described as beings who may give you significant help or teach you important lessons at critical moments on your spiritual path they are vehicles for your awakening who may themselves be realized or not they serve as teachers to propel you along the way Some are teachers, all are teachings.
1: I want to pin that phrase you just used, some who may not be realized themselves. So you can learn a lot from someone who isn't kind of at the end of their spiritual journey.
0: Precisely. It's essentially, you can have people and experiences that are serving to teach you and are important for you to have in a way that we might say it's... Uh,
1: The analogy I would make for us would be... If you're in the right environment in college, you can learn as much from your peers as your professors.
0: Sort of. I, I was thinking more about how we might explain a way of bad boyfriend. Go on. <laughs> like You learned a lot from the experience. <laughs> ah. But you wouldn't say, yeah, this boyfriend was my guru. But right. the experience that you had was critical to your spiritual path. Hmm. That sort of yeah, thing. And I like that. I'm going to give okay. you some examples because <laughs> – Ramdas has three of them that are pretty crucial to his journey. Hmm. So, the first one is a guy named Muktananda. And he actually met Ramdas at the beginning of his second trip to India, sort of jumping the timeline. And he had Ramdas coming with him to sold out stadiums, giving him mantras to increase wealth. And he clearly <laughs> wanted Ramdas as his successor because he was such a draw. And mm-hmm. then he sort of eventually gets away from him and goes back to. His main guru in India. Years later, when he's touring and lecturing, not staying in a place for more than five days, mm-hmm. he meets a real wild Tibetan tantric teacher named Chongyam Trungpa, who was involved in the founding of Naropa University in Colorado. And this guy was considered to be a reincarnation of a high lama. He had been educated at Oxford and mm-hmm. a real different vibe than other holy men Ram Dass had come across. <laughs> Trungpa smoked, drank, wore suits. Kept his hair short, seduced women, and would give these amazing lectures about Buddhism. Mm. And Ramdas just admits he couldn't reconcile Trungpa's behavior and his high state. And another meditation teacher told him, if you go to the top of the mountain and a bird flies off, don't think you can too. Mm. So Ramdas writes, Trungpa was an exquisite, though uncomfortable teacher. The way he used existential conditions at Naropa to illuminate my ego was true tantra. Trumpa's students were also on my case. And though I was uncomfortable about falling into my professor mode, they pushed me to be more coherent in my teaching. Trumpa wants him to stay at Naropa. He ultimately moves on. Then the third, and this is someone I could see you getting in trouble with, a <laughs> Brooklyn housewife named Joyce Green, who started going by Joya Santanaya, had fallen. Had a, she'd fallen into a samadhi trance at a Jack LaLanne health club and had a vision of Christ when she was lying in her bathtub, so she was a real homegrown mystic.
1: Uh huh. I'm waiting for the part where she has unique appeal for me. <laughs> <laughs> Brooklyn housewife falling asleep in her bathtub is not <laughs> not an immediate draw for me.
0: Well, Rondos describes her as a complex, many level being who hadn't integrated the many levels, meaning she had these powers and energy and intensity and affirming, you know, this ability to see astral beings. But she was just constant drama. She'd shout over the phone at a perceived slight, would show up as an apartment and make so much noise, the police showed up. And then when they showed up, she'd be in an intense trance. They had (laughs) to call an ambulance. (laughs) okay she demanded celibacy from her students but would initiate sex with ramdas behind closed doors when ramdas was hosting his friends john lennon yoko ono she calls because she has the the ability to kind of know that's happening
1: remote viewing yeah
0: and choose out yoko ono for breaking up the beatles wow and quote this is not to say joya was a fake she had cities powers and meditating with her could induce a great feeling of Shakti and being transported into another state. It could be intoxicating. But as with Muktananda and Trumpa, ultimately, that's not why I was there. I was there to get Maharaji's teaching, to bathe in his love. That came from inside, even while I was teaching alongside them. Ultimately, I really didn't want the power. Maharaji's love was still the strongest power. And ultimately, he writes on mea Kulpa in 1976 in a yoga journal the title of the article is called egg on my beard he writes, <laughs> i easily let myself be convinced joy had been exciting unpredictable simultaneously powerful and emotionally dependent
2: mm-hmm. but then
0: the incredible tapestry of half truths and lies began to unravel and the rest of the article is just an unsparing takedown of her and his own involvement he writes i feel bad for rejecting Joya so abruptly although there was no other way to break free cleanly. She believed in the things she did, however misguided or bizarre some of them were. And we had a real relationship, spiritual, physical, and emotional. Maharaji said, love everybody. That included Joya. So he finally breaks away from these sort of detours with other people Mm -hmm. that want some of his juice. And this is where we start to see Ramdas hit his stride with what will become his legacy. Mm -hmm. He gets involved with the hospice movement, started by a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she also
1: hospice like end of life care hospice? Yeah. This is a movement that started in the 70s?
0: Yes. Wow. Elizabeth Kubler Ross, who pioneered this, she also was who we get the five stages of grief from. Huh. I mean, hard to remember a time when that care wasn't available. You talk about a different world. Truly.
1: I I can see how that would be a very liberal, contemporary way of looking at care and end of life and all that.
0: So, Ramdas starts the Dying Project. With a man named Stephen Levine, and they start a hotline people can call as they're dying to have companionship. Wow. And They eventually expand into residential facilities. With Levine, he writes a book called Grist for the Mill, and on dying says the best preparation for death is to live in the present moment. If you're living in this moment and in this moment, and then when the moment of death comes, it's just another moment. But you can't tell someone else to live in the present moment unless you live here and now yourself. And he helps his stepmother Phyllis to die, and he helps his father, and really connects with him. This is over the eighties, and by by help I mean companionship and care, right? It's right. Sort of facilitated, not, not
1: assisted suicide, but helping them through their experience.
0: Yeah, but this is the eighties. It's also the era of the AIDS epidemic, and given his sexual mm. orientation, he writes very much that he felt that there, by the grace of God, go I.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And. Huh. That's one of his big legacies, his conscious aging, conscious dying, hospice care, and helping others to die. Yeah. His spiritual buddies, the Satsang, they start a foundation called Seva that also becomes this other ma- huge vehicle for charitable work. So it starts mm. doing eye operations to cataract surgery to help prevent blindness in places like Nepal and India. Hmm. And Steve Jobs was an early donator.
1: Like financial donator.
0: Financial donator and computers to huh. make the whole hospital work.
1: This is such a fascinating blend of the the spiritual and the materialist.
0: So Ramdas does a lot of speaking and fundraising. So then they turn their focus to homelessness. Robin Williams made a cameo <laughs> at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he writes of Compassion. Compassion is seeing others as ourselves, expanding our identity to include the person. When I sit with an AIDS patient, I know it could be me. When I sit with a dying person, I know that I too will die. Sitting Mm. with the woman in Guatemala, their suffering was also mine. And behind our suffering, we share love. And so he's doing so much charitable work. I didn't even begin to cover all of it because it was a little incongruous with time. But another big development of the 80s is he finds his partner, Peter who comes to a death and dying workshop. And they're together for almost 20 years.
1: Wow! So he's not there because he's chronically ill. He's there.
0: Wanting to learn how to give hospice yeah. care.
1: Wow. What a way to meet somebody.
0: It's also in this era that helps him reconcile his complex relationship with love and power in his own family. You know, using love as a way of control.
2: Mm, yeah. And he's
0: also able to reconcile his sexuality. And here's what he wrote about that. Maharaji said a man could be in. Brahmacharya with one woman. He meant that marriage could also be a spiritual route to God. Many of the Westerners took that to heart. Of course, he didn't say anything about a man being with another man. I think it applied to me and Peter. I didn't hide our relationship, but I didn't publicize it either. I felt protective of Peter, who was not a public figure. And though I had struggled Mm -hmm. early on with my sexual identity, at that point, labels like bisexual, homosexual, and gay didn't seem helpful. I had no interest in making my sexuality into a statement as my friend Allen Ginsberg had done, mm. to identify myself with any movement felt limiting. Souls have karma that manifests as gay or straight, male or female, but souls themselves are neither male nor female. My focus is to connect with others as souls and to allow all souls to be who they are. And as Maharji says, all love is pure.
1: I don't think I have ever, I don't think I've ever heard or considered that there's a difference between your sexual identity and your sexual activity. Because he doesn't seem to have a problem knowing what he likes or having sexual relationships with people. But his sexual identity, you know, has been the catalyst for a lot of his journey and a a constant source of turmoil, empathy, perspective, so many things. I was, I've always been very dismissive of sexual identity because it's kind of like, well, it's in the bedroom. I don't really, (laughs) I don't care what you're doing in there, but your, your identity you carry with you in a very different way than a sexual encounter i did not think that's what was going to come out of this for me
0: the seating in the soul perspective is this mm-hmm. different way of relating to the world it's truly trying to reach beyond people as they appear mm-hmm. it's he's really getting there so we're in the 90s now Oof. he's in his okay. 60s relationships are starting to come full circle with he's reunited with some of the guys from harvard
2: he's so mm. Yeah,
0: comes full circle with Timothy Leary, who dies in 1996 from prostate cancer. They reconnect. Other guys from Harvard, and a lot of resolution starts happening. And Ramdas gets in advance to write a book about aging, specifically about conscious aging. And he's having trouble <laughs> getting into it because he doesn't feel old. He goes to bed. <laughs> so he goes to bed one night imagining what it would be like to be truly a frail old man. And then, no shit, he has a stroke.
1: Oh, my God.
0: He survives it, but he has to relearn how to walk, how to talk. And he has a huge crisis of faith. A part of him thinks he brought the stroke on himself. How could you not?
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can and see
0: then that. slowly it starts to shift. In the book, he writes a lot about his inner experience during this time, but sort of glossing over it. Eventually it shifts. And <laughs> he starts talking to Neem Baba's picture again. And he's mm. able to come into his heart really able to lean back on his meditation training, even though he's having this huge hindrance with his body. And he says, and I really like this description, my satsang friends put up a picture of Maharaji on the wall of my hospital room. And then I thought the stroke must have happened because of my lack of faith. And I became deeply depressed. Strong faith would have avoided this. Once again, I told myself I'd failed the test. Of course, the truth is that we all keep failing tests until we don't. And that's the definition of the spiritual path.
1: Can you run that by me again? That was a lot.
0: I really like it. It's The truth is, we all keep failing tests until we don't. That's the definition of the spiritual path. Hmm. And I take that to mean that when we have something that tests our faith, tests our ability, tests ourselves, mm-hmm. it, it feels like we fail because we do. And then mm-hmm. we remember again. And then it moves on. Suddenly, you just walk through the door. Instead of getting stuck at the entrance.
1: This isn't even unique to a spiritual journey. I mean, that's the relationship between master and apprentice, right? You you keep failing until you don't. You, you've, you become a master of your craft. And you can keep learning, but you have to keep practicing.
0: Another teacher I like named Tara Brock, she says in a lot of her talks, that the spiritual path is one of remembering and forgetting and then remembering mm. again. Mm-hmm. So how many times have we learned something and said, gosh, I got to keep that phrase in <laughs> mind for the next argument yeah. with my spouse and then immediately forget it, discover it mm-hmm. six months later and say, well, that's really something. I should hang on to that.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And anyway, so goes on. He ends up finishing that book on aging, comes out in 2000. And he remarks, the cosmic irony of working on a book about aging and then having to finish it as a disabled old person is stunning. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What great perspective and humility from this guy, though.
0: So with the help of his community and his, this community of friends, his satsang, he and Peter are moved into a more wheelchair accessible house in Marin. And then in 2004, they're able to go back to the ashram in India, which has changed a bit. It's more strict. There's posted rules. And two <laughs> of the original guru's female followers, Siddhima and Jivantimam, one who before the ashram had been a housewife and raised a family, mm-hmm. and the other had been a school teacher. And they're considered the essence of Neem Baba in a nurturing female form. Hmm. And he has a lovely reconnection with this place that meant so much to him in his youth. And shortly after, he gets invited to do a retreat in Maui. And <laughs> he gets really sick. A month oh. in the hospital. And he's too weak to go home.
1: From He's in the hospital in Hawaii?
0: Yeah, and he can't, even after a month, he can't go home. He's in a wheelchair. Oof. He can't talk well. He's almost broke. And Wayne Dyer, the also spiritual talker, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he raises $300,000 for him by reaching wow. out to his audience. And a friend of his retires to be his assistant. Like People come out of the woodwork to provide for him. Wow! And people come to be his helper. They rotate. He's got mm-hmm. set him up with doctors and eventually- one of his supporters buys him a house to live in. In Hawaii? On Maui.
1: <laughs> oh, wow.
0: But he has, to, he has to tell Peter he's not coming back. Mm. And that's, uh, that's where their paths sort of differ. They still talk on the phone. He writes, talking about their cats.
1: He can never come visit?
0: He, yeah, but his life is in California. He's it's their <sighs> parting of ways. And he writes, and now people are coming to see him. So describing <laughs> the dilemma of needing to be aware of his body as it ages... And then mm-hmm. in the spirit, he writes, it's tough work. I was in the hospital getting my hip repaired. The hospital's the body shop. To most of the staff, I'm the old guy in room 322 with a broken <laughs> hip. But don't I also have a spiritual identity? Aren't I also a soul? I'm in this incarnation to learn about my true self. Along the way, I'm also learning about strokes and broken hips. I like to think of my body as a coach with horses and a coachman. My soul rides in the coach. The horses have desires, the coachman the ego the eye that controls the desires and watches where he's going and makes sure the foot doesn't go in the wrong place. Now and then my coach needs a grease-up job or a new bearing or a hip joint replaced. But my soul inside the coach rides along merrily, merrily, merrily. I'm still here, just hipper than ever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This, This also makes me realize that being... A very spiritually elevated person doesn't make you articulate or a good writer. It seems like there's a very fortuitous marriage there with this guy who can go through so many experiences and also explain them in a compelling, accessible way.
0: I should also say there's a co-writer on this book. It was a a guy named Ramesh Wardoss who interviewed him over years Uh, to pull this together. He's not just sitting down typing this all out.
1: (laughs) Fair, fair, fair.
0: And he also discovers at this point in his life, it's 2009, he Mm. has a son from a fling back in the late 50s. Wow. And they develop a good relationship.
1: So he's got a middle-aged son.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And the son is named Peter. Ooh. And they develop a good relationship. He meets his wife, their college-aged daughter, and
1: wow. they come out
0: every year to visit him in Maui,
1: and and they have a good relationship.
0: They have a good father-son relationship, and his son later credits him with opening him up to having more spirituality in his life. He's sort of a Quaker, and oh. yeah, and then his uh, so Ramdas watches his brothers die, and he reflects on the dance of karma that occurs in families from Maharaji's long view. A person is not just a bundle of adult needs and childhood traumas, the building blocks of a personality. It's a much subtler picture of karma working out across incarnations. We may have regrets about our family, or, as I did for many years, avoid and resent them, but the soul demands that every moment-to-moment experience of living be meaningful, fulfilling, and real. The soul's game is not about reorganizing external life. It's about inner reorganization, reorienting toward your soul. The battle of the Bhagavad Gita is not about dropping out or leaving the family. Where can you drop out to that your soul is not present? No. <laughs> this life is about finding a way to be in the world that connects
1: you to your soul. He's kind of yeah. a long way from being a student of Freud and Skinner. Good on him.
0: So the Love Server Member Foundation starts preserving his legacy around this time. He starts offering one-to-one counseling appointments to people over Ooh. over Skype. Ooh. And here's what they look like. Compare this to the hamsters. (laughs) At the beginning of a session, I ask, what's your sadhana, your path? We may go into that spiritual history. I enjoy solving the puzzle of another's mind, body, and soul. Hmm. Maharaji said, I hold the keys to the mind. Me. I'm kind of figuring it out as I go along. I have a whole ring of keys from psychology, psychedelics, and spiritual practice. I try them out until I find one that fits. Sometimes I can tell if the person I'm interacting with is part of Maharaji's satsang, connected from Path of But mostly, I don't know. I'm just listening, intuiting what is needed in the moment, hearing what resonates behind the talk, the flavor of the soul behind the personality.
1: Active listening, humility, patience, empathy.
0: And radiating it. And people, there's a years-long wait list at that time yeah. to get one of those sessions. And it's interesting to compare it, because when other people describe Nim Karoli Baba and gurus in general, They don't actually necessarily do anything. It's not like they're producing content and on the lecture Mm. circuit, they're sitting on a plank of wood in a blanket, they're being. And in these sessions that he describes, he's sort of doing that on a webcam, it's being. And people describe later Ramdas's presence as radiating love.
1: Mm. And I'm assuming this isn't where you took it from, but he has basically recategorized acid or psychedelics at large as one of myriad tools, which is sort of the the cautionary observation you'd been making with Leary.
0: Yeah. So the word that feature most in this end of the book is soul, love, surrender. The soul yeah. being the seer, the witness, the inner self. And honestly, the love is something I struggle with. He describes it as Maharaji's unconditional love lives in each ordinary instant. Love without expectation, without desire, without need of an object. The vastness of emptiness is completely full of love. To be here now in this vastness, I have let go of desires and expectations that keep me time bound. This is the essential surrender of the bhakti path. Letting go allows the self of everyday experience, my ego, my thinking mind, to merge with my higher self, my truest nature, to merge with the beloved, I have to let go of my experiences of even being an experiencer. This is how this jumble of my thoughts and sensations and emotions is forged into one in the fire of love. And I really struggle with that. I feel really close off from love, even with an object, like that sensation, <laughs> like this is love. It Like it exists outside my conscious awareness. Like I know I love my husband and my children.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But I feel delight around like people I see less and I can really recognize that, that joy, more than I can this daily foundational true love. I think
2: hmm.
0: like love and fear seem to be a little bit tied together to the fear of loving someone and then being taken away. The fear uh, that's,
1: that's not love, that's possession. <clears throat> I think they might have covered that in Star Wars, I'm not sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but anyway, it's something for me to meditate on.
1: But yeah. I struggle with this
0: idea of this vastness of love. It's not the most the easiest language for me to grasp
1: experientially,
0: mm-hmm. even though I know what he's talking about.
1: I feel like if if I took that verbatim and I replaced the word love with harmony, it might be easier for me to wrap my head around. Because so often I think love, maybe, I don't know if this is a Western thing, but it does seem like love is often used in a possessive ownership context. You know, I love my wife. I love my car, <laughs> I love my job. <laughs> it's like these are these are things that define me and that i I want to have in my life whereas this the radiant love of the guru sounds more like this person exists in harmony with whatever they encounter and they don't cling on to it and just accept the transience of all these things that are there to radiate the love right back to them.
0: I also think of. This shows maybe just how little of this experience exists in Western culture, but I think Mm. when you meet a dog that's just really happy to see you, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's it. That's the perfect. And you just see them, and they see you. Yeah, yeah. That feeling. I
1: just met you, and I love you.
0: (laughs) And (laughs) I knew such wisdom was there, and and then you open as well. I think it's that experience, but magnified to just this huge human experiential way. But the thing about using a word like love is that different teachers write about it in different ways. Because it's an mm-hmm. experiential process, you get to that love by doing the inner work and right. getting to that place inside. But surrender, now there's a term I like. So here's this quote. <laughs> surrender is difficult for Westerners to accept. We see ourselves as rugged individualists whose creative energy and willpower and constant striving makes our lives better and the world a better place. We think our power is the power of our minds to conceive new ways of manipulating objective reality. Our minds are our very being, or as Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. What we think of as reality is conceptual thought of how we think it is. We're afraid that if we give up thinking, we give up our power and free will, and we may succumb to someone else's power and lose ourselves forever. That's Mm -hmm. the fear. But it turns out giving up conceptual thinking is not so scary after all. In fact, it's a relief. I keep telling people, you are not who you think you are. So-called objective reality is only relatively real compared to the deeper reality of the self. And he goes on even further to say, mindfulness is an easy sell in the West, because people think it's about controlling thoughts, which are the foundation of our Cartesian reality. The paradox is that to really practice mindfulness, you have to let go of thinking. The mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. And our attachment is to the thinking mind, which dies with the brain and body. Getting past the thinking mind allows the essence of our deeper being to shine through, the soul beyond conceptual thinking. When you give up thinking, you're catapulted into being. Uh, pardon me. There's more of this, uh, this quote, which I'll read to you just because now we're getting into this juicy philosophy yeah, yeah, yeah. that's been sort of
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. absent.
0: He says, surrender on the bhakti path is a different proposition from giving up ego power. It's the surrender to the beloved that is no surrender. First, because the attraction to that state of being is so blissful that it subsumes all else. And second, because who or what one really surrenders to is no other than our own being. Call it our true nature, the self, God, Krishna, non-duality, or in Sanskrit, sat-chit-ananda, existence, consciousness, bliss. Maharaji represents that kind of surrender to me.
1: So it's not a subordination, it's a reunion. You're not attaining something, you're returning to.
0: If, if anything, it's going inward until mm-hmm. you meet your own spark of divinity. Mm-hmm. So you're not leaving the self to supplicate to a higher power, you're going inward to where that spark is in you.
1: So to, to bring this back to the framing for this whole series, mm-hmm. is that something that you are glimpsing with proper use of psychedelics is that why it's so profound it's not that you've achieved it but you've kind of seen where the path might lead
0: exactly i think he even said this earlier in when he, he realizes that he's touched these states i think that yeah. the guru even tells him you can see it but you can't stay there mm. whereas when you go through this inner path that he then follows then you can stay there forever it's a more – and it describes the process of aging and just falling more into himself and mm-hmm. into essentially meditating into this bliss of being in harmony with nature, with his schedule, and being at peace with what's pretty many decades in a restricted form. Like, he had the stroke in 1997. He didn't pass away until 2019.
1: Oof. Yeah. I – I really didn't think I would hang on to what I said at the outset of this series as much as I have because it really does seem like the the big lesson that everyone has their different ways of learning is when you when you take a psychedelic trip it might be profound but you can't take it with you it is not the it's not the end
0: well it's the it's the glimpse and yeah. it can be very profound because when they followed up with all those guys who did the Good Friday experiment, it had been incredibly profound. Mm-hmm. But where it got derailed was when you lock yourself in a bowling alley <laughs> and do it for two <laughs> weeks straight. Like those are very different uses of it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And it's so to finish this all up. In December 2019, he passes away, or mm-hmm. as he would say, he left his body.
1: Mm-hmm. I like that.
0: And Ramdas.org. And the Love Serve Remember, Remember Foundation, they continue, have a great gift shop, <laughs> and they <there's> have a podcast <laughs> okay. where they huh. reproduce his talks from you know the, all the years he was talking from the 70s, 80s, 90s. You can download them and listen to them. What a lovely premise for a podcast. Yeah, it's just his previous talks that were recorded and with a yeah. little intro. You can hear his pretty noticeable Boston accent. In some
1: <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgotten that 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 his his roots were Boston, Cambridge. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's not a full Wahlberg, but it's it's noticeable.
1: <laughs> Who is a full Wahlberg?
0: <laughs> and the cool thing about listening to him is that it you can touch what it means to jive with a teacher who's no longer in the body. When you can hear mm. all these talks and hear these different formulations of things, this different way of describing things. He, some of his talks didn't touch me. The way his book did. His book really <laughs> got me because it seems like the zenith of understanding, especially towards the end. We's really elucidating how he relates to his guru as a <laughs> met, almost a metaphysical experience. It's not just Neem Karoli Baba. It's how yeah. that energy has lived, embodies in himself.
1: And when you have a teacher like this or a guru who leaves the body. You have so much of their, the residue of their learning and their teachings, and you can kind of miss the idea of them while not having that possessive feeling of the relationship or the person.
0: It's, I think it's even a wider spectrum because the whole realm of potential cities or powers that these types of beings can have, mm. and what they're capable of in terms of how his essence was passed on or could be passed on to these two other devotees, how there's little tricks that they can these are things, these things, I shouldn't say tricks, things that happen in these reaffirming experiences. And we're going to have a whole little, you know, 1.5 part where we discuss <laughs> and some of these other little stories. Because it's that is, I think, where you get onto the spectrum of how much we want to believe is true with where you can see it just purely as a truly revolutionary teacher for one's own spiritual journey. And you keep that relationship going in your own practice, or you can see it in the larger yogic tradition of a finished being, as he called it. And he made sure in the writing to say, I'm not a finished being, I'm just yeah, a student yeah. on this path. And you know, learning as I go. But I think it's especially from just looking at a life how the devotional community of people he met on that second trip to India, those are the people that were there for him his whole life, his spiritual community, his satsang. And the effect of his life's work came back to him in his old age hmm. and cared for him. He was very well cared for.
1: Yeah, his his spiritual reach gave him material support when he needed it.
0: Yeah, because he he actively didn't take his inheritance from his father. Oh. He gave away lot, pretty much all his money he earned.
1: Huh. I didn't expect this to be my favorite episode you've taken me through so far, but it, I think it's by far the most interesting in a non like <laughs> popcorn chewing, you know, watching HPB <laughs> chain Chainsmoker way <wait> across <laughs> India. This this is the most thought provoking one you've given me, as much as it also synthesizes a lot of what you said.
0: Well, it's incredibly moving because it is a single person's spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. Everything they did, all the failings, I. I can very much relate to both wanting to find someone like mm-hmm. a like a guru being seduced by people who have power and have the thing you want but they're just mm. not they're they're just wrong in some way. Yeah, yeah. They're just making noise and then falling into a trance in front of your door
1: yeah performative spirituality
0: and then at the same time when you look at these pictures of him with his wide eyes and his big Mm -hmm. beard you can't Mm. help but go yeah tell me more
1: (laughs) go on heal me with your magic hands rasputin I'll,
0: i'll give you the i'll give you the stuff for the book because it's it's a good
1: read oh absolutely
0: it's a good read and Let's just remember the tree, the psychedelic 60s tree that this all sprang from. Right. Because we're going to have to cover the other branch oh, of where God. Timothy Leary went.
1: See, and, and yet again, seeing that they were contemporaries and peers, and the the branch that he went off on really reaffirms to me how incredibly self-indulgent Leary seems to have been, you know, this this bad faith science and this desire to build a cult around himself
0: well it's this crucial difference between recontextualizing the psychedelic experience in a different point of view that right we can just say more empowering how psychedelics got reframed for him with the guru changed Mm -hmm. everything about how he related to this deeper message of people and he writes also in the end of the book how he's so thrilled that things he worked on are now normal hospice care Mm is so normal oh my how god yeah conscious aging is so normal he wrote about how he's so thrilled that the myriad of gender choices and sexuality isn't and people don't have to suffer the way he did being wow, and the way his yeah. brothers did
1: being in confused and in the closet what an incredible life perspective to be able to go out with 2019 and psilocybin therapy you yeah.
0: know and The way the world shifted from his first overland driving, Tehran,
1: to (laughs) India. Oh, yeah. So not all for the better, necessarily, but he got to really watch the wheel turn.
0: He watched the – I mean, he – that's why I said when we got to the 90s, he was already in his 60s. Yeah. There was so much and truly two decades in a disabled body like that. And he published tons of stuff. His biography – he writes also about how before the stroke, he'd been helping everyone else – he wrote a book called How Can I Help? And then this total switch to being the receiver and to yeah. really deepening the practice by not being able to do as much. And there's photos of everyone came to him in Maui. Oprah came out to see him. You know, <laughs> Peggy Hitchcock came back to Maui. It's He meets the sun. People come.
1: I, I do also feel like I need to return to part one of this and say it sounds like his journey really began when he would shut up and listen and accept the the teachings and the reportings and the inherited wisdom of other people from other cultures who have come at this in different ways or not even engaged with psychedelics at all, but have relevant insights to share.
0: I don't see how he could have had he not had the breakthrough experience. Yeah. You know, the opening of a spiritual heart, as he said, we could call it his breakthrough, where it heats. And I think about spiritualism with mm-hmm. that where well, we describe the process that Samuel became a spiritualist. And I think it was the last one where it always was it had to get personal. Mm-hmm. And that's what did it. And I mm-hmm. think on the spiritual journey, whatever the path, there has to be an element of it getting meaningful and personal. And that's what is the convincing thing. You know, because he talks about his mind's narrative. The type mm-hmm. gurus are a hustle. These people are in a cult. <laughs> who, who doesn't relate to that? But then yeah. the word spleen just cracking it so all open. In, yeah. And, you know, we talk, look at HPB, and Henry Steele Alcott. You know, he had all these Fermi experiences. Or when we think of any sort of bad faith, abu- where whether someone is spiritually gifted or not,
1: mm-hmm.
0: whether it's what the person needs and is the right thing for opening them up, you can see how it can be just not
1: quite right. It, it does seem like the, the hard line difference that I'm starting to see is... Your your good faith operators are saying there's wisdom and experience and knowledge out there. I have a little bit to share, and it's here if you want it. And then you have other people reinventing the wheel and going, it's me, I've got it figured out, or even I've, I'm getting it figured out. But if you want to be there when it happens, you have to follow me.
0: That was my that was my pitch on social media, Norm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But I think that's why I'm enjoying this with you because we're we're learning from others we're we're revisiting the discoveries and foibles of others you're not you're not conditioning me
0: <laughs> Well it makes me also think of what Ramdas wrote in his dedication I'm not going to say it verbatim because I don't have it in mm. front of me but he wrote something to the effect of I hope this story of my last incarnation can help you on yours
1: Wow god that's really good
0: right wow. I was reading and just going when you i s- I've always been someone who can take wisdom from other people. I like talking mm-hmm. to old ladies, hearing what I should be doing as a young one, mm-hmm. and, you know, listening to other people's experience. And there is something really nice about reading the look back of someone who has that clarity. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, Timothy Leary also wrote an autobiography. Oh god. Which will be it.
1: <laughs> I'm so disappointed that my opinion of him has not been improved. I really was I was hungry for humility, and instead, I just feel bitter. <laughs> I feel bitter toward him for just the the bad faith.
0: It's it's I can't not include it though, because it is the human condition. There's a yeah. reason I titled this series what I did.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's extremely pertinent, and it is it is insightful and educational. I just sometimes I don't want to hang on to anger for no reason, and I had this bad taste in my mouth about him from just weird fourth hand hearsay. And as I get closer to the source, I'm going, I don't feel much better.
0: (laughs) The thing that I like from these teachings I've just started to get exposed to here Mm. is the idea of moment to moment. Death is another moment, the moment that we're here in. And for the longest time, I felt like jaded by that. It sounds hacky. It feels a little bit inaccessible. And yet when you think when you have psychedelic experience, I think it's even easier to appreciate that because it's a moment you have a choice. Do I think this thing, do I look down that scary hallway? Do I, do I follow? It's easier to perceive that sort of dichotomy choice. And the moments are like that as well. Can I choose to hold on to the anger to Timothy Leary for being such a, (laughs) such a schmuck or can I choose to let it go? Can I choose? You start to perceive that level of choice we have in the present moment in all things. And it's something to be cultivated because then it serves you better in the next moment and the next moment. Mm-hmm. And that's how you end up on a different, I want to be on a Ram Dass path. I don't want to be on a Timothy Leary path. <laughs> spoiler word. Yeah. It's not much of a spoiler, but I'd love to be cared for by my adoring followers. And <laughs> <laughs> what a nice way to go yeah, compared really. to where we're going.
1: <laughs> I had a, a thought yesterday as I was driving home, knowing that we were going to be having this conversation. And people talk about psychedelic experiences like it's transformed them as people. But it seems to me that it's really easy to pick out people who would have or will be open to trying psychedelics. But I don't think it's easy to pick out people who have tried psychedelics and it's actually changed them. Does that make sense?
0: I do. It does because it's the glimpse, and then it's the question is, what did you do with the glimpse?
1: Exactly. I think it's it's easy to pick out people who they're into a counterculture or they're just weird, <laughs> you know? They're they're whatever way they they are, and you're like, oh yeah, this this dude would do acid, and it's not because they seem to have attained an enlightened state or they have profound wisdom to share. As a rule, although I'm sure those people are out there, I'm sure I've met some. It's just I think it's easy to lean into a stereotype and go, yeah, this guy does acid and not have that come from a place of "Wow, you seem really wise. It makes me think that you've had a psychedelic journey that has yielded profound insights.
0: He even writes about how he wanted that instantaneous enlightenment Mm -hmm. that we I mean, we all kind of secretly hope that we'll get,
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: you know, it'll all be made clear and then we'll be able to keep it when we come down from the high. And he writes about one of that. And actually, he framed it as it's really just been small incremental steps mm-hmm. over a lifetime, which is the boring answer your mom gives you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I want to lose weight now.
0: Yeah, pretty much. And it's but that's the way of it. But what I do think is fascinating is that these beings like Maharaji, for example, Neem Karoli Baba, he was also a householder. I want to get mm. more into it, and I'll cover this on our little one and a half episode. It, he had a wife; he was married at age twelve. He had three kids, Oof. and he was like in a he had a householder responsibilities. Probably, he's really old by the time he Met Ramdas. But you know, the other ladies they had lives before. Mm-hmm. These states are achievable in one's lifetime.
1: Well, that, that sounds like a mythology that to attain any kind of spiritual growth, you have to shrug off all materialism. It seems like one of the core lessons here is you can balance your materialist needs, you know, for, for security or whatever, with your spiritual development.
0: The, the lady I mentioned earlier, Acharya Shinya in her book, her, fa- her guru was her grandfather, who had was one of these enlightened beings and had a ton of kids, a ton of grandkids, and was a, a big guy in the village, but yet still had this spiritual knowledge and this spiritual presence. So they do reconcile. I sometimes in like my little naysayer mind, I think about (laughs) what you want to write about, like the feminine experience. Like, yeah, you get to be a guru, but who's washing your laundry? (laughs) Yeah. But it is reconcilable. You don't to be spiritual. You don't have to move to India and you don't have to step away from your life.
1: You don't have to be a hermit begging on the streets.
0: It's it's in the moment. It's in your own mind. It's be here now.
1: <laughs> yeah. It it doesn't seem like a contradiction to me. It, it just seems like balance. Like you can have a balanced relationship with materialist things. As long as it doesn't define you or completely preoccupy you, why wouldn't you be able to be here now and enjoy your your spiritual development i
0: think we should get shirts
1: (laughs) if if i if i get a spirits and psychics shirt i will wear it to every recording no question
0: and with that i'm gonna turn off